You're listening to the Ancestral Elements Podcast. I'm your host, Travis Gray. Join me as we cover topics about nutrition, health, and lifestyle so you can have ancestral health in a modern world. This episode is brought to you by Ancestral Elements Supplements. If you're looking for high-quality whole food supplements, check out AncestralElements.com, navigate to the Supplements tab, and you'll find liver and colostrum, as well as a bear clover tincture that's the only one on the market. I worked with UC Davis to get it lab tested. It's high in quercetin and other phytochemistry that provide antioxidants and anti-inflammatory properties. Sweetened with a hint of maple syrup, lemon peel, and ginger, it's 100% organic and wild-crafted, and all the lab tests are also available upon request. If you're looking to increase your antioxidant activity and fight inflammation, check out the Bear Clover Tincture. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of the Ancestral Elements Podcast. Episode 32, Carbohydrates, the Good, the Bad, the Ugly. All right, on this episode, I want to take some time to go through this macronutrient called carbohydrates. We're going to talk about why your body needs them, what's going on inside your body when you're breaking carbohydrates down, and then we're going to go through kind of current nutritional recommendations for carbohydrates against the other two macronutrients. And we're also going to take an anthropological approach to carbohydrates, and we're going to look back at carbohydrates through kind of a historical lens. Okay, so right off the top here, I want to talk about what carbohydrates actually are. In the most kind of basic, simple perspective, they're just sugars, starches, and fiber that come from vegetables, fruits, and grains, and some dairy products, because there's obviously sugar in dairy products. And they can also come from muscle tissue, from meat, uh, because sugars get stored as glycogen in muscles and in organs like the liver. So you can get a small trace amount of carbohydrates from muscle tissue and from the liver, but it's not a very significant source. So typically, they are coming from things like fruit, vegetables, and grains. That's predominantly where the majority of us are getting our carbohydrates from. The most produced carbohydrate in the world is corn. And corn is a grass. If you've ever seen pictures of an undomesticated corn crop, I mean, you would be... It's almost laughable, to be honest, because it looks far more like grass than today's corn looks like. We have selectively bred corn to be gigantic compared to its wild counterpart. Teosente is the term for that. And it's become the most popular crop in the world largely due to how versatile it is because it's so starchy and so sugary that you can extract it. And what you're left with is this ultra-sweet kind of starch that has a really, really long shelf life. And so if you go look at 99% of the kind of commercialized products that have a good shelf life, whether it's, you know, donuts or hot dog buns, hamburger buns, other types of bread products, soda, you know, you name it. I mean, any of that type of stuff. It typically has some type of corn derivative in it. Typically, high fructose corn syrup. Or a lot of times now it's just called corn syrup. Or they'll use some other type of label. Sometimes they'll use maize syrup. Um, it's actually labeled as a natural ingredient by the FDA. So if you are looking to buy kind of quote-unquote natural 
products, um, typically it's got some type of corn in there. Now, obviously, if you pick up a bottle of, you know, Cairo syrup versus a cob of corn, those two things are hard to claim that they're the same. You'd be hard pressed to make that claim. And so really, we've perfected this, this grass that now we grow all over the world that originated in North America. But really, pretty much every type of ultra processed food is going to contain some type of either corn starch or corn syrup in it for a sweetness component or some type of other stabilizing mechanism like cornstarch provides. And there's other derivatives of sucrose as well. Obviously, cane sugar from the cane plant is extremely popular. You know, another just potent sucrose food, one that is very, very reduced down, similar to corn. You know, if you were to suck on a cane stalk, that's quite a bit different than just piling in white sugar. And really, when you start reducing these once natural foods down to very, very easily digestible and sucrose kind of component foods, you get immediate spikes in your glucose levels, in your blood sugar levels that your body then has to produce a lot of extra insulin for. And so that's why things like type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease and being overweight go hand in hand with these things. And we hear this story over and over and over again, but it's addictive because we are biologically adapted to go for these high carbohydrate foods because they're a fast, quick energy source. Similar to protein, carbohydrates have a four kilocalorie per gram energy source to them, but what they do to the body is very, very different. They're digested very different than, say, protein is. They're digested rapidly, and you get a sugar hit, and it feeds your brain and your surrounding tissues, and it feels good. And so, especially with ultra-processed foods, that's why they're so high in sugar. You have three things that really the human desires above all else. You have fat, sugar, and salt. And those three things combined together are so desirable for palatability when eating, we become addicted to it. Our body just lights up. And you're supposed to. That's the entire point. So there's nothing wrong with you if you're craving those things. I mean, you're literally just paying attention to your biology. It becomes a problem when you start eating yourself into chronic diseases, which has now become a worldwide problem. We've eaten ourselves into diabetes, cardiovascular disease, obesity, with not a huge sign of really slowing down. So when talking about carbohydrates, the quality really should be at the forefront. And that really is what needs to be questioned because a carb doesn't equal a carb. 15 carbs of high fructose corn syrup that's jammed into something like a Pepsi is very different to 15 grams of carbohydrates that are in, say, buckwheat. And it's all about the breakdown of the carbohydrate and how your body utilizes the first and secondary metabolites that are broken down from that food. So I'm going to get into some fermentation principles. But first, I want to talk about the current recommendations that nutritionists and the powers that be at the ADA, so the American Dietetics Association, recommend for macronutrient ratios. And they are as follows. Carbohydrates, they recommend 45 to 65% of your total calories per day 
are consumed in carbohydrates. Protein, 10 to 35% per day, and fat, 20 to 35% per day. Interestingly enough, studies that have been performed, funded by the ADA, and that the ADA recognizes any diet that is 60% or above in carbohydrates increases your morbidity. If you look at a food pyramid, or what is now a plate, what do you see at the bottom? You see high carbohydrate foods, whole grains, right? That's kind of the theme of the hour is whole grains. So if we have studies showing that 60% carbohydrates increases your causes of death, why would the leading nutrition body be recommending a diet of up to 65% carbohydrates per day? Really, the answer isn't that complicated. It's because of funding and it's because of lobbying. And to be clear, they recommend whole grains because they are they are broken down differently than empty, what are called empty carbohydrates. Things like high fructose corn syrup and sucrose that is reduced down and derived from plant material to a refined white powder or syrup. But most people don't know that. Most people just either love carbs and they feel guilty about eating them or they don't care at all. And if anybody's curious about looking at these studies, I've posted them in the show notes so you can peruse at your own accord. So I want to get into what happens when your body breaks down these quote-unquote good carbs, these whole grains that everybody's supposed to be getting in as a primary fuel that bulks up their diet. So what happens is when you ingest these carbohydrates, they almost immediately start getting broken down, at least to release kind of their primary metabolites or their primary sugars that the body uses. They start out as these long chains of polymers, these long sugar chains. And what happens is eventually they break down into these simple sugars or these short chain fatty acids. So sometimes you'll see it abbreviated as SCFA. If you eat some type of plant food, let's say peas, so snap peas, for example, it's a starchy sweet vegetable. Typically, a lot of times they're eaten raw. And so when you ingest those sugars out of them, that get stored as glycogen in your muscles and in the liver. And then it breaks down into short chain fatty acids, what isn't picked up by your tissues. And it does that through a process of fermentation. And the thing that ferments that is your hind gut. So the small intestine and predominantly the colon, which is interestingly enough where the microbiome is. And so it breaks it down into what are called secondary metabolites. And there's predominantly three of them, butyrate, propanate and acetate. Butyrate, which is the smallest breakdown of the three, makes up about 15% of fermentation. Acetate, on the other hand, makes up almost 60% of fermentation, and propionate makes up about 25%. Butyrate has been the focus of quite a few studies, and gastroenterologists like studying this secondary metabolite because it performs a lot of action in the body, even though it's kind of the least produced 
it has profound effects on the body. What it does is it acts as a histone deacetylase inhibitor for the intestines. So what that means is it basically blocks those histone proteins that coil or relax your DNA in your epigenetics. So this is it has an epigenetic component to it. And depending if they are relaxed or coiled up or tightened, is going to change the genetic expression, specifically of the tissue, of the colon and small intestine. And so there needs to be a balance to that. As we know, with any type of epigenetic kind of driver like that, you can't have anything that's overexpressed or not expressed enough. In laboratory settings, it helps kind of turn over the colon and potentially help with things like colon cancers and colorectal cancers. It also, if you have an overaccumulation, can contribute to them. So there's a balance. So this fiber fermentation that you get from vegetables accounts for about 9% of the daily energy requirements for the colon. And what the colon doesn't use, then butyrate goes to the liver via the portal vein, where it is involved in fat metabolism. In obese individuals, short-chain fatty acids, so these secondary metabolites from fiber breakdown, are a lot higher. Overconsumption of butyrate induces the mRNA protein expression of fat genes and decreases the amount of enzymes in fat metabolism, causing insulin resistance and impaired glucose intolerance. So in other words, it starts messing with pancreatic enzymes and with liver enzymes because excess butyrate gets stored in the liver. And with particularly with obese individuals, then that whole epigenetic mechanism of butyrate affecting the histones is overexpressed. And so they're getting in basically an overload of butyrate going into the liver and it's messing up their fat metabolism and possibly contributing to insulin resistance, which is exactly what you don't want if you're obese, because then what does that lead to? It leads to type 2 diabetes. Are you with me? So keeping things in balance is crucial. And obviously, if you're obese, then things aren't in balance. And this is just one example of how things change, right? And how this kind of broad practice of make sure you get a ton of fiber preaching is maybe not the best thing to be preaching for certain individuals. A little bit of fiber breakdown is one thing, but if you're making up close to 65% in these kind of fermentable fibers that your body has to deal with, it ends up being a load on your GI, specifically on the small intestine. And it causes overexpression of these epigenetic factors that I'm talking about. And so using blanket statements can end up potentially causing more harm than good. Now, the type of fiber being broken down is important because some of it is easier to digest and is easier to assimilate than others. So you have what's called soluble and insoluble fiber. Just as it sounds, soluble fiber is going to be pretty easily, easily absorbed into the body. It still needs to go through a fermentation process. Insoluble fibers, much harder to utilize. They tend up they tend to kind of pick up things through the intestines as they go. It's it's bulking material. It just doesn't really get broken down. And it can cause a lot of GI distress if they're overeaten. And so if you've ever eaten a lot of just a lot of plants, if you've noticed some bloating or, you know, some kind of GI distress or upset, it could be down to kind of insoluble fibers just sitting in the gut and it not being able to be broke down properly. 
And it really depends on your microbiome. It depends on how the microbiome is breaking and down and utilizing these short-chain fatty acids in the small intestine. Oh, and side note, this is the proposed mechanism for how something like Cheerios or Quaker oatmeal can reduce your risk of heart attack and lower your cholesterol. Because again, it alters fat metabolism and triglycerides that accumulate in the body. So oats, for example, will have a bit of a kind of sweeping mechanism and a change in the liver triglycerides that are present and kind of expel those a bit. But being that it can be hard on the GI, eventually over time, it can have the reverse effect like we talked about previously. And so you need to be thoughtful about these type of carbohydrates, things like Cheerios and oatmeal. Some people can tolerate it way better than others. It really depends on the microbiome. I actually don't have that hard of a time metabolizing and utilizing carbohydrates. I do fairly well on them. I don't eat nearly 60% of my diet on carbohydrates. I personally would flip my protein and carbohydrate requirements for the recommended daily allowance that the ADA provides. So I typically would eat 10 to 35% of carbohydrates and then 45 to 65% of protein. I would flip those two. That would be my recommendation. And for a lot of people, they would be far better off if they did that. It just depends on what your body is doing. I mean, I'm not going to give a blanket statement for everybody, but protein, like I talked about in the episode last week, it provides satiety. So it keeps you full and you're not going to have sugar cravings if you're really full. See, that's the thing about carbohydrates is they're utilized so rapidly, you become full very, very quickly. And so that leads to more binging, more eating, right? Fiber keeps you full, but not like protein keeps you full. Protein is a long process of breakdown and fermentation. It's a lot slower than carbohydrates, and so it keeps you fuller for longer. So especially if you're trying to manage something like type 2 diabetes, eating a diet of high protein, low carbohydrate is going to be far better for you because you're limiting epigenetic factors like butyrate that's just going to increase your insulin resistance and glucose intolerance. Does that make sense? So depending on what you have going on, you may need to flip those recommendations. And again, this is why we get into juggling these macronutrients around, but you can't just flip-flop from diet to diet because every fad diet will have a different ratio of protein, carbohydrates, and fat because all they're doing is just juggling macros around. And so again, staying diversified in your diet with a five kingdom approach and then adjusting to your own specific needs within a broad five kingdom approach is going to be far better off. I mean, this is something I've preached over and over and over again and will continue to preach over and over and over again. Okay, now that I've covered the breakdown and kind of how carbohydrates perform in your body and what they do, I want to talk about when to get them in your diet, when your body is most primed to receive these carbohydrates. So seasonally speaking, your microbiome shifts its bacteria, its viruses, its protists, its archaea in the springtime to receive more carbohydrates. And if you think about this just on an evolutionary perspective, it makes complete sense. 
if you're eating within your own bioregion, let's say in the Northern Hemisphere, then you're going to have spent the winter eating a lot of fat because that's when fat is available predominantly. You're going to have stocked up in the fall and you're going to have spent the fall and the winter eating game meats and tallow and all these rich macronutrient foods that come from fat. And your body is going to be ready for some fresh carbohydrates, some fresh greens, some fresh vegetables. And in the springtime, that's exactly what happens. So you get an intensity of UV from the sun, and that triggers a microbiome response in your skin. And that eventually makes its way down to your GI tract, where it will reproportion things like your bacteria and your viruses and your protists and your archaea in your gut to receive carbohydrates more effectively and efficiently. So in springtime, you're getting these tender shoots of plants, what are called meristematic growth in plants. In the early spring, most predators aren't out yet eating plants. Insects, in particular, aren't out in swarms yet. They're still being hatched. And what that does in plants is it creates a tenderness because they don't have to fight off insect predation. Because when that happens, that plant starts to release toxins to make those plants undesirable for insects. And it can, in some cases, release insecticides, natural insecticides that end up killing the insects that feed on the mature growth. And so at this young stage, the plants don't do that. At this young stage, you can utilize these tender plants that don't have a bunch of medicinal compounds in them that they have in their later stage of growth. Are you following me on that? So they're a lot easier for your body to utilize and digest, and your body's prepared its microbiome to effectively absorb these types of macronutrients. Because you're going to primarily find your carbohydrates in plants, in grains, things that you're going to be harvesting in the springtime. So evolutionarily speaking, this makes total sense. And this is the way our bodies still are. So in the springtime, you can load up on your carbs a little bit, if done with a varied and specific approach to it. Because again, eating just a bunch of white flour in the springtime isn't going to get you there. You know, I've talked about how lack the diversity is in the plant kingdom and what we eat in, say, a grocery store. We're predominantly eating corn products. And for fresh vegetables, we're predominantly, a lot of us are eating the brassica family or the silencia family, which is nightshades. So bell peppers, any type of pepper, eggplant, tomatoes, potatoes. So if you're eating a genetic diverse plant population, that's going to utilize the carbs a lot differently than if you were just eating bread in the springtime, for example very, very different. So don't take this as an invitation to just, you know, stuff a bunch of white bread in your mouth on the spr in the springtime, because that's not what I'm talking about here. And speaking of the nightshade family of plants, I'm sure you guys are aware of kind of the toxicity factor in nightshades. And that's why there was a thing going around for a number of years, or maybe, shoot, maybe a number of decades, where, you know, people weren't eating nightshades, plants in the nightshade family, right? Because they were toxic and, and bad. Um, and there are some things about them that can potentially be bad. There are a lot of alkaloids in there that 
that act pretty heavily on the body. A lot of medicinal compounds are derived from these kind of plant alkaloids. Close to 60% of pharmacological medications are derived from plants and these types of alkaloids. So, I mean, they are very active in your biology. So pectin, for example, is another metabolite that is present in carbohydrates, things like tomatoes and potatoes. These pectins, um, and often found in fruit as well, actually, that's why so like jams, um, that pectin is a thickening. But what pectins can do is they can rob beta carotene from your body. So they can rob vitamin A or in kind of the inactive form of vitamin A. But it also increases vitamin C metabolism. So fruit, for example, may be very high in pectin, but they're also high in vitamin C. And so it drives vitamin C into the tissue better. And it has a steroidal effect. So pectin has this kind of enhanced steroidal compound in it in association with the vitamin C. So they used to take certain compounds out of the tomato plant to make certain types of medication for cough syrups and for um, for lung issues. And with some things, they still do. So it's kind of, it protects the mucous membranes of the lungs and helps kind of expel things and it's expellent. Um, so anything real with, that's kind of thick. So think of like chia seeds or okra, right? Um, can kind of help those mucous membranes turn over. And with this certain combination of alkaloids that they found in tomatoes and in the leaves of tomatoes, they actually used to make um, cough syrup out of it. And typically you're getting these fruits when the UV is most intense. That's why so many fruits grow near the equator because where is the UV most intense? It's at the equator. And you need that to keep your skin healthy. Are you with me? You need a higher antioxidant load. And you need something to drive it into the cells. And that something is pectin. And so if you eat a ton of fruit near the equator, probably not a big deal if you're spending a bunch of time outside getting some UV damage. So again, it depends on where you're located. It depends on your bioregion. I know I've talked about different fruit and how it protects as kind of a natural sunblock. So late in the summer, that's when you get those fruits coming in because they're high in antioxidants and they help your skin turn over. And those pectins help the vitamin C and antioxidants drive into the cells. Something like potatoes. You know, everybody says don't eat green potatoes because they're toxic and they can cause death, um, which is kind of semi-true. I mean, it's true, but you, have to, you would have to eat a ton of green potatoes. You have to eat something like 90 green potatoes to cause some issues. But these alkaloids that are in there, they come from this, they're called salonins sol um, because they come from this saloncia plant this family of plants, these nightshades. And they can be psychoactive. They can cause diarrhea, vomiting, nausea. 
and potentially death in some certain circumstances. So nutmeg is another example of these nightshades. Nutmeg is actually psychoactive, and people used to use nutmeg as a kind of a, a drug, as a psychoactive drug. It can cause death if you take too much of it. Um, I wouldn't recommend trying it. People do it, but I, uh, you're playing with some pretty serious alkaloids. Um, a lot of heart medication and cholesterol medication is derived from these alkaloids, which is interesting. Um, but again, eaten moderately with its cofactors and coenzymes, probably not a big deal. If you try to live on just potatoes or live on tomatoes all year, every day, day in and day out, could potentially be a problem. But again, eating within season, within your own bioregion, becomes very, very important. And none of these things are going to be that harmful because you'll eat them for a few months and then they're gone. And you'll move on down the spectrum of species. But it kind of just goes to show you that, you know, tender shoots of the meristematic growth from plants in the early spring is going to differ drastically to late spring or late summer when these fruits are coming into play. So as long as you kind of stay in cadence, you stay in step with the season seasonality of these foods, you're going to get a diverse array of compounds, cofactors, enzymes that's going to bolster out your carbohydrate load for that season. And so eating carbohydrates in that respect is far, far different than just eating, you know, whole grains every day. You know, 60, 65% of your diet made up of whole grown, whole grains every single day. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Not when you put it into kind of an anthropological and evolutionary perspective. There's a time and a place for carbohydrates. But man, I can't really suggest that it's every single day, especially with limited domesticated grains that we're eating, whole grain or not. You know, the wheat plant is very different from what it once was. It has far more gluten and gliadin proteins in it that can cause GI distress than it once did. Right? That's why so many people are now gluten, have gluten insensitivities. And that's why fermenting, such as something like sourdough, when you do a natural, natural slow fermentation on wheat products, breaks it breaks down the sugars. It breaks down the starches. It partially digests it for you. So fermentation, whether it's done out of your body or in your body, breaks down sugars. That's what fermentation is, right? That's where you get alcohol as an end result. So sourdough actually has less of a, not only a glycemic index to it, so less of a sugar load on your body, it also has less of a protein load because it breaks down the gluten and the gliadin proteins that can cause GI distress. So if you're going to eat bread, lean towards a slow fermented sourdough bread, or better yet, do it yourself. And you're going to have far less GI disturbance than if you're eating just whole grain wheat bread that's store-bought and pre-sliced. 
there's your kind of top tip for the week. Because again, back to carbohydrates causing really quick, rapid spikes in your blood sugar, in your glucose, in your body, that's when things become an issue because it's a load on the pancreas and it's a load on all those epigenetic factors that I talked about. And so the more you can kind of limit or regulate when glucose and sucrose, when your sugar molecules are broken down and the way that they're broken down, that's going to be far better for your body because it'll slowly just utilize and absorb them kind of throughout a slower process. So honey is a great example, right? You can find honey in the wild. People have been eating honey for hundreds of thousands of years. Matter of fact, there's a hypothesis that that's what actually drove our brain growth and drove us to possibly develop new technologies such as fire, even before our current form of homo sapiens were on the planet. So people have been utilizing carbohydrates forever, right? They are important. They're a really, really important energy source, right? Same thing with native cultures of, let's say, the eastern United States. Maple syrup, a staple food, right? High sugar, high sucrose food, right? It's cooked down, reduced from the sap, from maple sap, and usually turned into maple sugar, right? But it's a slow glycemic release, just as honey is. So typically, these kind of wild sucrose foods like honey and maple syrup and even agave to some extent is a slower release for your glycemic index. There's more cofactors. There's more enzymes that slow things down and your body it slows that absorption down. White sugar is a lot different. You know, high fructose corn syrup, a lot different. Corn on the cob, a slower release, right? The cane plant, much slower release. So if you're going to go to high carbohydrate foods, go to fruit, go to honey, go to maple syrup, you know, and then grains, Anytime you can get things sprouted or fermented ahead of time, if you have, if you struggle with kind of digesting grains and beans and rices, then try to get things kind of pre-fermented as much as possible, pre-sprouted. Because again, sprouts, think about that, meristematic growth, right? Tender shoots. Think about microgreens, right? That's quite the trendy thing right now. Put, putting microgreens on everything, micro kale, right? You don't go to the grocery store and see mature old kale packaged up. What do you see? You see baby spinach, baby kale, right? Tender meristematic growth, right? More palatable because there's less medicinal value in it. Are you with me, right? I mean... Next time you go to the lettuce aisle, next time you're in the supermarket, you won't see <laughs> old kale <laughs> packaged up. You'll see baby kale. And that's just young growth. Less medicinal value, right? So less kind of these plant alkaloids and things in them that we talked about, but higher carbohydrate, easier to eat more of. You know, where I'm at now, acorns were a primary food source for native people, predominantly for most of North America, wherever there were oaks, wherever there was acorns, people were using them. But in order to process acorns, acorns have a ton of tannins in them. 
and tannic acid will bind to many different things in your body and strip them out. And so what you have to do with acorns, you make acorn flour. And you do that by fermenting them. You do that by getting the acorns out, grinding them up a little bit, and then leaching the tannins out of the acorns. You leach that tannic acid out, either by a cold extraction or a hot extraction, for a number of days if it's a cold extraction. It can take up to 10 days to get the tannins out of there. And what happens is it slowly ferments in the water. And that utilizes those carbohydrates far better. You couldn't eat an acorn just on the ground. I mean, it's far, far too bitter. Too many tannins. Too much medicinal load in there for you to eat. It's not palatable. And so by fermenting them and leaching out the tannins, it creates a nice starchy product that is ready to eat and has a good amount of carbohydrate to it, a good amount of starch, right? So when thinking about carbs, you need to think about kind of the breakdown. That's kind of the main takeaway. You need to think about the type of breakdown that your body has to do to utilize the energy. If it's super fast, super rapid, your body has to go through a ton of different chemical reactions to kind of feel that, to utilize it, because it's so quick. And your body doesn't like to do things from zero to a hundred, right? It likes a nice, slow, controlled release, because your cells can take it in and absorb it and utilize it as it goes. So basically, carbs are just being broken down from complex chains to short chains. And it's going to involve your pancreas for insulin production, your liver via kind of the portal vein, your microbiome with the small intestine and the colon. So you've got many different systems breaking down these carbohydrates and trying to slowly ferment them and utilize them. You know, and I guess kind of the last parting words I can leave you with is just take it from an individual standpoint. If you're somebody who does pretty well on carbohydrates, you don't have any type of GI disturbance and, you know, you tend to not get any bloating or anything like that, then, you know, maybe you can utilize some higher carbohydrates, but make sure they're from good sources, right? Some easier digestible carbs. Squash is a great example of that. You know, some potato, you know, stay away from just kind of the ultra processed stuff because that's going to disrupt anybody's GI. You know, if you're going to go whole grains, either fermented or sprouted is going to be important because it's, again, easier to digest because the domesticated grains we use today aren't the best. They're higher in the protein content because it's an, essentially it's a natural insecticide. Gluten and gliadine, insects can't utilize that as well. It's a natural insecticide. That's why we've increased the protein content in our modern domesticated wheat. There's another tip for you. So make sure it's previously fermented if you're going to go that route with whole grains. You can do it, but you've got to be smart about it. 
fruit, eat it to your heart's content this time of year. It's there, utilize it. You know, in the winter months, taper off. But right now, your body needs it and your body's ready for it. And so utilize it. So I hope that this cleared some things up about carbohydrates. Just be smart about your use, you know. And if you're somebody who can't utilize them well, just kind of always craving them or constantly hungry, even when you binge on them day in and day out, switch to a higher protein type diet because I guarantee that will satisfy that hunger and you won't have the urge to binge as much. So, okay. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. I hope you guys have a great week. Stay well, stay healthy, get outside. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Ancestral Elements podcast. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave me a rating and review. This will help people find the podcast so we can grow the audience. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to talk to me personally, go to ancestralelements.com slash community to get access to the forum. We go through each episode every week and talk about these concepts and ideas in greater detail, and you can connect with other listeners. 